0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well today we're continuing our series Jesus and His people. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 15 verse 22 to chapter 16 verse 4 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled "Sufferings and Success.
1: To be that people thought that a used car salesperson was among the most untrustworthy of all professions and they thought that way because this was a time when there were very few regulations in the industry you know a salesperson might use untoward pressure to get a customer to buy a car he might also hide the problems the car was experiencing or the car might have been in an accident, and back in the bad old days, the salesmen, and yeah, they were all men back in those days, but the, the salesman wouldn't disclose accidents as well as mechanical problems. Lying to customers was frequent, a sense of betrayal that people felt was pronounced. And so to call someone a used car salesman, well, that was considered a slur. It was meant to imply an untrustworthy individual who frequently resorted to deception and lies in order to get what he wanted. Well, Jesus was no proverbial used car salesman. He never promised his followers that they would become rich or that they would escape disease or that they would live long lives or that they would win the accolades and applause of the world. Indeed, in the passage just prior to what we're going to be studying today, he had said, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This was said in the context of his calling his disciples to proclaim his gospel to the world. You know, as Jesus went out announcing the kingdom of God, as he healed, as he drove out demons, as he preached the good news, many rejoiced, but his enemies increased. He knew the daily occurrence of slander, people saying untrue things about him. He knew the threats, and of course, eventually, they would crucify him. A servant is no greater than his master. That is to say, you, my followers, will not rise to a station greater than I. Indeed, if they persecuted me, they will associate you with me and will wait to dish out the same hatred on you as they did on me. You know, I spoke about that in my last address. And when I did, I left a certain matter unresolved. I made passing mention to a problem. If this is what Jesus promised his disciples, why is it that although his words did come true and that eventually every one of them, with the exception of John, would die a cruel martyr's death, why is it that not one of them broke ranks? Why didn't a single one of them say, you know, I've had enough? Who signs up for this kind of hardship? That is, you know, why didn't they fall away? Well, one of the reasons is that Jesus never deceived them, not once. He never sold them a bill of goods, or he never acted like that old proverbial used car salesman, not telling them of the sure hardships they would face. They learned that since he was a truth-teller in everything, well, then his promises to the life to come, to the glory of sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and the glory of the kingdom to come, that that must also be true. Now, I contrast that to so many today who... Pedal religion as a promise for satisfaction in this world. I mean, is it any wonder that so many of their followers actually do fall away? That's because the promises they offer often don't come true. And eventually their followers ask questions that do need answers. If God loves me so much, how then can he let me suffer as I do? I didn't get healed. I didn't get that job promotion that I prayed about and the one that so many others prayed that I would get as well. You know, the the one that people encouraged me with and said that, that because God loved me, he would withhold no good thing from me. And then when it doesn't turn out the way the peddlers of religion promise, it will. You know, people become either disillusioned or they fall away completely. They fall away because they were lied to from the beginning. Jesus was never like that. He said, A servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, or if they obeyed me and and followed my directives, they'll treat you exactly as they treated me. Like me, you will become men and women who know sorrow and grief, people who come to know that this world is not your friend. You know, Peter would later agree with Jesus. He would say that we would be grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, the reward is coming, but it won't come until the end of the age, at the consummation of all things. So in the meantime, we may well suffer. Let's get back to Jesus teaching his disciples on that night, which as we know, he would eventually be betrayed and arrested and then sent to trial and crucified on the following day. But we still have the question to ask, don't we? I mean, why is it that people persecute Jesus? You know, in John 15, 21, Jesus said, they do it because they do not know the one who sent them. That is, they don't know God. It's not intellectual knowledge of God that he has in mind here. Rather, it's the experience of bending the knee to him, submitting to him. Men prefer darkness to light because their deeds are evil. And then we come to John 15:22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. See, that statement requires some thought. And Jesus is not saying that if he hadn't come, they wouldn't be guilty of any sin whatsoever. I mean, we might remember, you know, Paul's discussion of that matter in the book of Romans. He says that the law of God reminded the Jews that they were lawbreakers and sinners, and that regarding the Gentiles, well, they might be ignorant of the law, but they too were guilty of sin. I mean, for one, creation itself taught them some things about God. Uh, They knew that they were guilty before God. Indeed, their conscience told them a great deal as well. And then in Romans 3.23, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, there's a universal guilt that all human beings not only bear, but if it weren't for the fact that we're just so busy suppressing the knowledge of God, we would be all too well aware of it. And so Jesus is not contradicting that. Rather, he's saying, if I had not come, they would never have been confronted with the supreme revelation of God. If I had not come, they'd have never been guilty of rejecting the greatest gift that God had to offer. In the face of such overwhelming light of the glory of God, what did they do? Well, they, they turned on such a glory in rejection, in persecution. If sinful human beings could bring it about, we would murder God himself. And declare that finally and utterly, we have gained our liberation from God. And then along came Jesus. And if he had not come, men would not have had the opportunity to express such hatred and sin against God. And so in essence, by going to the cross, Jesus exposed the deepest and darkest sin in the human heart. So let's continue to read John 15, 23 to 25. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. You know, in this passage, Jesus is speaking most specifically of Jewish religious leaders. That is, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious teachers, the high priest, Well, the entire Jewish religious establishment. And he starts by making what must have seemed like an outrageous charge. See, the Jewish religious establishment, says Jesus, they hate God. You might wonder where I got that, but look at verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And since the religious leaders hated Jesus, he's saying they also hate the father. Indeed, it is their hatred of the one true God that drives them on. Now, we might object here. I mean, weren't many of these people teachers of the law of God? I mean, how can the teachers of his law hate that God? But Jesus had confronted their attitudes more than once. I mean, one famous example was the tradition that had been called Corban. According to the law, children were responsible to care for their aged parents to pay them back for their years of care. But then along came the rabbis, and they taught Corban. It's a very clever way of teaching people to break the law. And Jesus said, you nullify the word of God with your traditions. Indeed, the rabbinic traditions were designed to do just that. Finding God's law an inconvenience, they invented clever ways to rebel against God, all the while appearing righteous and pious on the outside. So Jesus was right. I mean, the reason they did it is because of their intense hatred of a God who had given them such a law. In a sense, Jesus outed the religious leaders and he outraged them. Jesus gave them all sorts of illustrations of that. Every time he confronted them, everyone could see their hypocrisy and sin. It's not as if they weren't sinful before they met Jesus. It's just that in meeting him, they couldn't hide their sin anymore. Jesus was God's mirror holding up to them so that their true nature was being exposed to others and to themselves. See, Jesus acknowledged that they hated him because of it. and He was right. Whoever among them hated him, he said, also hated his father. That much had become abundantly clear.
0: The Advent season is a very special time of year but it sometimes gets lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. While well, this month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias and the Pilkey sisters, as he walks us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with a very special video presentation entitled An Advent Celebration. Preparation takes practice, readiness, waiting, and allowing God to go beyond our expectations to fulfill His will in our lives. An Advent celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings good news and great joy. To know more or to make a gift to support the ministry this season, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Verse 25 does
1: seem curious. You know, if Jesus was confronting the Pharisees, they seem to have a reason for hating him. But look at verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Well, it seems they did have a cause for hating Jesus. It wasn't a righteous cause, but it was a cause nonetheless. But let's consider the case more closely. Here Jesus is quoting from two Psalms, Psalm 69, 4 and 34, 19. So we'll start with Psalm 69:4. It's a Psalm of David. And it says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. See, when David says the wicked hate him without cause, he's not saying they couldn't give a reason for hating him. I mean, perhaps he, the king, you know, had stopped them from carrying out some evil activity. And so, you know, they had reason to hate him, but they hated him without a just or a righteous cause. See, they had no moral grounding for hating him. David, in a sense, is the example of what happens to the righteous when they insist on being righteous. If they're being upright, they will make enemies. Now to Psalm 34, 19. It's also Psalm of David. And here also David is finding that men are fighting against him without a just cause. And in that Psalm, David wants God to protect him because he says, malicious witnesses have risen up against me. Indeed, in verse 12 of that psalm, David actually says, they repay me evil for good. And apparently, David must have done something good to these men, but they don't care, or they've forgotten it, or they never even think about it. They just want David destroyed. So let me read verse 19, which is the verse that Jesus quotes. It says, Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink the eye, who hate me without cause. In other words, in the end of the day, don't let my enemies have the last word so that it would seem that unrighteousness has won the day. And so it would seem to anyone else that you've abandoned your servant, and that's David's prayer. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. You know, first, the religious leaders who hated him also hate his father. Second, they have no just reason for hating me, says Jesus. And by the way, that's so important for us to hear. See, there are those, when they hear of some kind of a conflict between two people, I mean, instead of investigating the matter fully, there are some people who simply come to the conclusion that, you know, it just takes two to tango, and so there must be enough blame to go around on both sides. You know, there are those who, when approaching conflict, immediately assume that one could never think that one might be innocent. But how then, if that's your prism, If that's your way of seeing matters, how then do you deal with the crucifixion of Jesus? You know, it's a strange world we live in, in which the quest to get to the truth does not drive many forward. Instead, they're driven only by the idea that conflict is something that must be avoided. Now, of course we don't love conflict, but not all conflict is to be avoided. Jesus didn't. He pointed out the hypocrisy of the religious establishment, and then he said, they hated me without cause. That is, they had no righteous cause for hating me. Now, you might think the same way. I mean, you might hate Christ for exposing your sin, but it is love that drives him to do so. You hate him without cause, for unless he shows you the cancer that's in your soul, you'll not seek a physician. He can't heal you until you cry out under the crushing weight of your sin. The way of the cross presents the mercy of God, but it can only do so after our sin has been exposed. And this story of the cross will always excite both hope and the hatred of the world. It's evil powers that control the thoughts of men and women. Now then, why is Jesus taking the time to explain that? Well, let's go to the next section of our text in John. Take us now to verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, who I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We know that Jesus was calling his disciples to mission. They were to take his message to the world, but as he often told them, not only would they be hated, but they wouldn't be alone in their task. And notice how Jesus explains things. When the Helper comes, he is, of course, Referring to the event at Pentecost. They're not to begin their mission until the helper came. Now, you might notice also that Jesus says, I will send him to you. That is, he will come from the Father. Now, at this time, that wouldn't have been a new teaching for them. Uh, We simply go back to John 14, 16, where Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And so Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper. And the context is clear. The mission he's giving them is too large for them. The resistance that they might encounter is too daunting for them. The suffering they're called to endure might be enough to make even their best intentions just go away. But they need a helper. Notice also that the helper is sent both from the Father and the Son. You know, In John 14, Jesus says he's given from the Father. And now in chapter 16, Jesus says he sends him from the Father's presence. So the image is that the Helper is with the Father. Jesus then approaches the Father and sends the Helper from the Father's presence. Now, many have wondered about that. I mean, how do the three persons of the Trinity interact with each other? So we know that it was the Father who planned our redemption from eternity past, and it was the Son who, in obedience to the Father, accomplished our redemption by becoming a man and you know, living a sinless life in obedience to the righteous law of God. And then by becoming our sin sacrifice, submitting himself to the will of the Father, even to death on the cross. If you will, in this picture, you have to imagine the Holy Spirit awaiting his unique assignment. He's in the Father's presence as Jesus is carrying out his role. But now that the task is finished, Jesus says, I'm going to immediately go to the Holy Spirit and say, now it's your turn. Given the rebellion of the world and given the weakness of the disciples, the world will not hear of the plan of the Father accomplished by the Son unless the Holy Spirit performs his vital function of helping these disciples. What's the function? Jesus says, he will bear witness about me. Now, we're supposed to understand that while the apostles are preaching Jesus, wherever they have opportunity— the Holy Spirit comes alongside of them and preaches as well. There will be an inner awareness in the hearts of many who hear that this is the truth they've been wanting to hear. In other words, the disciples are not just going to face opposition. They're going to have fruit. Their mission will be a resounding success. I wonder if while he's sitting at the table, Peter remembered Jesus when he first encountered him. Jesus had said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And now Not only he, but all the others are told, you know, why this was a certainty. You know, they would suffer, but there's great news. The suffering won't be in vain. The mission won't be a failure. It'll be a wild-eyed success, far greater than they had ever imagined. So Jesus is telling them the truth. And then we come to chapter 16, verse 1. I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. See, the great danger isn't persecution. It never is. The great danger is that they, or we, or for that matter, anyone might abandon Christ because we didn't foresee the opposition that would occur. I'm telling you both about the great opposition to the gospel as well as the great success, says Jesus, so you won't fall away. And after Jesus said that, no one can ever say, Lord, you know, why didn't you tell us there'd be suffering? Indeed, I would say, not only did he tell us, but listen up, Listener. Every faithful preacher of Jesus will also tell others the same truth. You know, if you follow Jesus, they'll treat you the way they treated Jesus. Either they're going to repent or they're going to viciously oppose you. Now, I've said this so that when it happens, you're not surprised as if something unexpected were happening to you. He already told you. Now to verses 2 to 4a. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You Remember when I began, I used the illustration of an era in which, you know, used car salesmen, when there were very few regulations, some men believed that by lying, they could sell more cars. It's that way today when we meet a preacher who fails to say that there's always a cost associated with repenting and turning to Jesus and carrying on his mission. You know, first Jesus promised the 11 that they would be thrown out of synagogues. Since then it has often been the case that religious people have resisted Jesus with a vengeance either through persecution or through the twisting of his words that's scarcely found anywhere else. But then Jesus went even further. There will be those who, when they kill you, think they're offering service to God. Those people don't know God, but when it happens, remember this, I never deceived you. I told you to expect it, and I also told
0: you there would be a reward in the end of the day. Thanks so much, John. You know, John, it seems to me we tend to err on talking to new Christians about all the benefits of faith without mentioning the trials and the challenges.
1: Yeah, I mean, we obviously don't want to drive people away, but I have found that where we're honest with people, uh, people tend to respond. Because uh, the reality is, um, if we're honest with them about the trials they face, they'll also assume that we're honest with them about the glories that are to be revealed. Um, So, um, I have found that um, I had a professor that was uh, back in seminary who said to me, that which we win them with, we win them to. So, if we're winning them with just a good news message, whenever there's bad news, uh, they fall away because they didn't sign up for that. Rather, we're calling them to believe in an eternal reward and that they may go through a very difficult time of suffering uh, before Christ calls them home. And uh, we need to get them ready uh, because these things are
0: true, but they're also glorious truths. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Ricardo wrote, thank you and all the men and women of Back to the Bible Canada for the great work you do. You continue to inspire my spiritual growth and I'm grateful God has given me the opportunity to contribute all praise and glory to God. Ricardo, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and perhaps the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? Well, with your financial contribution, or by becoming a monthly partner through our 1119 Fellowship, we can continue to make Bible teaching you can trust accessible to our nation. If you'd like to be part of the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.